Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. I'm Devin Kadayama, and you're listening to The Bay. Local news to keep you rooted. San Quentin State Prison was one of the first and hardest hit places during the pandemic. Now, the number of cases has fallen dramatically, but a lot of damage has already been done. For people on the inside, they have not been able to see their families. They've had mental health services scaled back hugely. They are not being rehabilitated. Today, what it's been like inside San Quentin and how incarcerated people are dealing with the trauma of this past year. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. St. Quentin Prison had one of the earliest outbreaks in the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation System. This is Kate Wolf. She's a reporter for KQED. In June, July, cases got up to 1,500 cases, you know, in a two-week period. Eventually, you know, about... 2,200 people got the virus. It's more than two-thirds of the population in San Quentin. And 28 people died during that main outbreak, along with a few staff members, too. I mean, essentially, it just got really bad in San Quentin. And I know across California's prisons, 
last summer. But what about now? California has done a great job with distributing the vaccine to incarcerated people and staff members. Now in the whole California prison system, there are 13 cases. Um, And they're doing pretty regular testing across all 35 prisons. So it sounds like San Quentin has turned a corner, but, but I also imagine that there is a lot for people inside to process. And I know you've volunteered in San Quentin and still talked to some people inside. What are they saying? It was really a traumatic experience for pretty much everyone that I talked to and have talked to since. Just weeks of fear. People who've been inside for decades and decades characterized it as the most terrifying time of their lives because people were being hospitalized at a really fast clip. So St. Quentin is a relatively less restrictive prison, and a lot of guys really try and get transferred there because there are programs ranging from you know, a whole college inside to um, just anger management and religious groups, but, but also, you know, exercise and painting and yoga and programs that are centered on rehabilitation. I was a very busy person. I got in touch with Alan Mabry, who is a 57 year old man who worked in the maintenance department. And he also was involved in programs like Alcoholics Anonymous, but um, also Vogue, the Victim Offender Educational Group, which is a rehabilitative kind of form of group therapy. And he was also part of a group called Squires, which gives tours to at-risk youth of the prison. And then, you know, I work out too. So, you know, I, 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 try, to do, I try to do the three things, the, uh, the physical, the mental, and the spiritual, because I'm a Christian. And uh, it's just, uh, that's what I did. So what happened to Alan's daily life and, and his involvement with all these programs once COVID hit the prison? It all shut down. Once they just cut everything out, I went to doing nothing, and I am going nuts inside that cell. Life was replaced with a very mundane and frustrating existence. You are really in just a small cage. Your toilet, your sink, your bunk bed, that's your life for a year. All amidst this environment of such intense anxiety and fear, added to the existing anxiety and fear that exists in prisons anyways. People were going sick, the sirens were going off all the time, and it was scarier than hell. So Alan was celled up with a man named John Stevens, who he characterizes as just a great guy and a great friend who was nearing the end of his sentence. John was a good guy. He really was. He was, uh, he was a hard worker. He fixed things. Uh, you know, he was, he was a real stand-up guy. Ultimately, John who was 72, got the virus and became very ill. It was very painful for Alan to be watching this happen and watching John deteriorate. You know, when you live with a man, you know, it's, 
you know, we're in prison and, uh, you know, when you go in the cell at night, they shut that door, that lock that door, and then you know, it's just you and your cellie and kind of you bond together. Alan kept asking uh, for medical assistance for John and says he was told by correctional officers and members of the health team that they had nowhere to put John. I've gotten confrontations with the officers uh, many a time over trying to get John to go take him out to the hospital, and they they refused to do it. Finally, John was removed from the cell, and he died two weeks later. The, the, the emotions inside, there's, there's like, uh, it's just the worst, it's the worst feeling in the world to sit there and watch somebody go through something and you can't help them. I mean, the, and then nobody around you wanted to help you. Alan is really struggling with the aftermath of John's death. He felt betrayed by CDCR. He felt that he'd lost a great friend. It was, it was, it was rough. You know, and uh, John, his, you know, it's just, uh, it was a shock. Alan, since he got into prison, has been checking in with a mental health professional every 90 days to kind of deal with the um, result of his crimes. And he said that after John died, he reached out for uh, additional help via telehealth for help processing the loss. I mean, uh, that's one thing I've learned while I'm in, I've been in prison is not holding it in and then just trying to get it out. And I have been reaching out to a counselor. It has done something for him. You know, he has recognized that sharing those feelings is is uh, is important, but it's just not the same. What San Quentin used to, to be doing before the pandemic was a lot of group therapy sessions four to five times a week. And now they get a workbook. They get a cell-front check-in where someone comes by and says, how are you doing in, in front of your cell? And you say, fine, <laughs> or however you're doing. But um, it's not private. I mean, I'd love to go back to work. I'd love to go back to groups. And I'd love to go back to my AA. But uh, it's been over a year, and, you know, it's just... <laughs> We'll see, you know, it's just looking at them four walls, or three walls in, a, in, a wall, in bars, it's just, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's aggravating. I would think that a lot of people have a story like this because so many people died of COVID inside prisons and so many programs were shut down. What do advocates say about the impact they've seen this have on people who are incarcerated? Advocates for incarcerated people are saying it is time to loosen restrictions. There needs to be a a return to normal because um, it's not just about COVID. We have to think about um, the rest of people's physical and mental health. I spoke with Michael Bean, who has been the lead attorney on a mental health lawsuit, class action lawsuit against CDCR for many years. And he has been working in conjunction with the state corrections department to try and figure out how to best provide mental health care for incarcerated people during the pandemic. It depends on 
getting fresh air, having exercise, having something to do, uh, visiting with their family, all these things that are also important to people's humanity and their overall health. He thinks that the system is not moving fast enough to allow people some more freedoms. I think more could have been done with out-of-cell time during the whole pandemic, but definitely now. Can't go backwards, but we can go forwards. Have any programs started to come back at this point? So earlier this month on April 10th, in-person visits opened up and folks could come if they had a negative test, one person at a time, to sit six feet away in the visiting room with a mask on and speak with their loved one. That was a little bit of positive news, but other things haven't really changed. Because everything has been happening over correspondence, CDCR has said, oh, these programs are allowed to take place, but they're all happening via pen and paper. So um, from what I've heard from program providers, they have no idea when they're going to be allowed back. You know, why, why is it taking so long? Does California's Department of Corrections Rehabilitation have a plan for when these programs can return? So I think it's a few things. I think that... CDCR has really been under the microscope for the past year because it is the place that the biggest COVID-19 outbreaks happened. CDCR is very worried about, you know, getting flack for reopening too soon, is uh, is the opinion of Michael Bean. Is it risk-free? No, it's not risk-free. You have to balance that. The harm of, of continued social isolation you know, it is, it's not safe to be locked in your cell. They had a roadmap to reopening that they released last year in August. But, you know, a, a, the attorney, Michael Bean, says it still doesn't move quickly enough. In terms of what incarcerated people know, you know, a lot of the folks that I've spoken with haven't heard anything from CDCR. And they feel totally in the dark about when things are going to reopen. As far as telling us when they're going to open program back up, that's, that's I don't know, that's... That's the million-dollar question. Alan Mabry told me that they, from what he has talked to others about, they are expecting on June 15th when the governor has said that um, the economy will be mostly open in the rest of California, they're expecting that that's when CDCR will be opening up too. We keep hoping on the inside that they're going to open up. So uh, I, the, the rumor is it's in June. So they're saying that is because Gavin Newsom said it on TV. said June 15th, everything should be open up and uh, back to the way it was before COVID-19. You know, it, it sounds like even though cases are way down, the pandemic has still had this really huge impact on people on the inside in lasting ways. I mean, you think about just the amount of help that we in outside society needed to get through this pandemic. I mean, um, therapy services and mental health services have been sought out in record numbers. And going out for walks and getting involved in volunteering in the community. I mean, we've, we've had outlets, and yet it has still been so difficult for people on the outside. For people on the inside, they've had mental health services scaled back hugely. They are not 
being rehabilitated. And they are, in many cases, worse off in terms of their mental health than they were at the start of, of the pandemic. You know, it's like people are on edge. It's like, you know, I've been locked up 12 years, okay? And uh, this is the worst, by far, year I've ever had in my life. And uh, it's just packed, five years packed in one. People are still struggling. I mean, you hear from Alan and others that I've spoken with that this is going to take a long time to repair. And they don't quite see the light at the end of the tunnel yet. Kate, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Kate reached out to CDCR. A spokesperson said they couldn't comment on the death of Alan Mabry's cellmate, John Stevens, and also said they were in the process of updating their roadmap to reopening in state prisons. Thanks again to Kate Wolf, a reporter for KQED, and to the folks at the San Quentin News, a newspaper written by incarcerated people and distributed to all California prisons. Before I let you go, I want to share an update on a previous episode. Earlier this month, we told you about Jocelyn Foreman, who is a grandmother who's been renting a home in Panol after being unhoused for years. Now, last month, a real estate company won the house at a foreclosure auction for $600,000. But thanks to a new state law, Jocelyn had the right to match the offer within 45 days. The only thing is she had to find that money on her own. So after weeks of crowdfunding and help from the Northern California Land Trust, Foreman beat the odds, and now she'll get to stay in her home, and it's going to be permanently affordable. It's the first time this law has been used to keep a house from getting bought by a corporation. And on Friday, Jocelyn Foreman and her family celebrated with the signing ceremony. This house was so important to me because it was my opportunity to break cycles for myself and for my children. This was out of the box. I didn't know how, I didn't know where, I didn't know when, but I knew it was possible. This episode was mixed and edited by Erica Cruz Guevara and Alan Montecilio. Shailen Martos is our production assistant. Issa Mendoza writes our Friday newsletter. The Bay is made by your local public media station, KQED. I'm Devin Kadiyama. That's it from us. Talk to you later. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. 
Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.